forever. Dog. Welcome to Public Intellectual. I'm your host, Jessica Crispin. If you would like to support Public Intellectual and to keep it going into the future, please go to patreon.com slash public intellectual and do it now before Patreon implodes as it looks like it might. You can go on Twitter or Google and find out more information. But uh, basically, I think podcasters need a union. But if you go now, you can enjoy Patreon and all of its benefits bonus episodes, a blog, and so on, and it's only mildly exploitative mode. That's patreon.com slash public intellectual. In this era of conversation about sexual assault and sexual harm, the word consent is used a lot. And it isn't used only to mean a person's willingness to engage in a sexual act with a partner or partners or, you know, whatever you've got going on over there but is somehow misused often to mean enthusiasm or desire. It also is sort of used as a way of indicating that everybody is going to enjoy themselves, which is not necessarily the case. But how does this misuse of the word limit the conversation about sex? And does it sort of lead us into a binary mode of thinking about sex of harmful sex, which is non-consensual sex, and beautiful, blissful, rapturous sex, which is the consensual sex. So I invited Joseph Feichel, the author of Screw Consent and Sex and Harm in the Age of Consent, to talk about this particular word and how to think about bad sex in a more complex way. I wanted to start by talking about the sexual predator or the sexual offender. You you argue that this has become almost an identity rather than um, something that you do. So you are a sexual offender rather than you commit a sexual offense. Um, So I just wanted for you to walk us through that argument of how we came to this point in our culture. Great. And thank you again for having me on the show. And I will admit that I have, I had not been listening, but now I am listening to Public Intellectual. And so I spent uh, two days catching up and it's a great, it's a great podcast. So thanks for having me. Oh, thank you. On it. Um, so the, the, to get to your first question, and this is, you know, this is mainly the, this is the thesis of, of my first book, um, which was my dissertation, which is why it's a little bit jargony and there's a lot of Foucault in there. Um, <laughs> but the, but the question, the question of that book is, you know, what if our, national sexuality is no longer um, heterosexuality, but adult consensuality. So it's building off of earlier gender studies moments in the late 90s that kind of assumed, rightly, that our national sexuality was heterosexuality and the kind of costs that were then incurred onto queers, you know, you know, uh, gays and lesbians and others. And, and, and the question for me was, well, what if now, you know, after Lawrence v. Texas in 2003, and now, of course, all of the uh, Obergefell on the same-sex marriage cases, uh, what happens when, in, in some circles at least, right, like the, the, the gay man is this prized sexual category. He kind of kind of represents sexual freedom, right, because he is the prototype of the consenting adult. And my question was, well, what are the costs? What are the costs once we elevate adult consensuality and who bears them? 
And the my the the thesis is that um, uh, in order for consent to do that, the adult consent to do that. Con- sorry, the consenting adult to do that kind of work, we create these other figures kind of carry the weight. So um, the the predatory uh, recidivistic sex offender is one of those characters, and the and the innocent child is the other. And the uh, the idea here in the sort of triptych, uh, you know, the kind of consenting adult that is the homosexual and the uh, sexual predator and the innocent child. Um, is that is that we 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 load onto characters and onto persons, um, um, you know, sexual violence and sexual freedom, you know, as if all of the kind of sexual injury and harm is locatable on on these predator types who we can put online and we see their faces and you know we can block them out of our lives, uh, and and that seems you know misleading at best and quite dangerous given everything we know about the ways that sexual injury and harm are multiply mediated and multiply sourced. Um, and so often uh, about power and abusing power and family relationships rather than, you know, um, the, the stranger, the stranger sex offender. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and and, and uh, uh, on the flip side, you know, what that predator required was the innocent child and the sexless child. Uh, hence, you know, one of the objects of that book is <clears throat> the show To Catch a Predator, which was wildly popular for the few years that it was on TV, where, you know, you have. The, the supposedly 12 or 13 year old decoy is what the, what the show called her. Speaking of objectification, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, they would call her the decoy. And, she, and, and we were, you know, she would offer lemonade or whatever. I think Kathy Griffin has a funny stand-up routine about this. Um, but, you know, so on the, so on the one hand, we see this teenage girl being sort of flirty. And on the other hand, we're supposed to, we're supposed to, you know, sort of, um, be outraged by the, the by the potential violation of her innocence by the predator. And, 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 uh, Again, I think the, the sort of triptych is locating innocence and, and predation onto characters belies, belies a more complex reality here, the sexual agency of teenagers. And, and how do we actually care about the vulnerability and sexuality of teenagers without having to, re- render, without having to render them, you know, helpless and, 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 uh, and innocent? I don't know if that answered some of your questions. Yeah, I, I think the reason why I find this idea of the sexual offender being an identity so interesting is because, um, you know, it does seem like this has been building up uh, for decades. The enforcement, uh, particularly the enforcement that happens even after a sentence is served, um, like the Mm -hmm. sexual offender uh, registry, um, the restrictions on where a person can live, sometimes holding a person past uh, his actual um, sentence uh, because he's sort of deemed still a risk, even though uh, he served his time. Um, That sort of, you know, meeting this particular moment of the public outing of uh, actually sort of caring (laughs) in in some ways about sexual assault and sexual violation um, has sort of created this weird moment um, because we we do have this kind of distinct lack of empathy for the sexual offender, and also sort of a lack of understanding of um, how they become how they a, a sexual offender, uh, how to rehabilitate uh, somebody who's offended, um, and so it's just created like this weird moment where now we see uh, what's been going on, but now we I don't think that we have a coherent plan of what to do about that. Right. Right. Um- Right. And part, part of why we don't have a coherent plan about that is no politician, you know, wants to say uh, these laws aren't, well, I mean, some do, but very few want to say, you know, this is, this isn't working. We should rethink how we deal with, uh, sexual violence and sex offenders, right? Because that, that's sort of political suicide. 
Um, um, so, and, and here I, I might get into a little, a little bit of trouble, but I, I should say, you know, from the get go, my, my interest, there are different kinds of criticisms about sex offender laws. And one of them, you know, is the constitutional one that these, these registration notifications, residency requirements, um, you know, you know, the online stuff, GPS tracking, you know, for, for various reasons are unconstitutional, either ex post facto or cruel and unusual punishment. I mean, we don't have to get into the weeds. Okay. There's a, there's another one, which is <clears throat> a humanitarian concern, right? Like the plight of these sex offenders and that we're doing horrible things to them. I'm sympathetic to that concern, but it's, it's, it's never really been my, uh, my main one, <laughs> frankly. Um, 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 <clears throat> I don't mean to sort of sound uh, crude. My, my main concern and, and other scholars too, um, Emily Munners and Rose Corrigan come to mind, um, is that from a feminist perspective, this is like a terrible way to, to deal with sexual violence, mm -hmm. right? These registration not notification requirements and, and, and culturally or like, um, psychologically, right? The sort of total lack <clears throat> of sympathy or just assumption that these are just like evil, horrible men, um, I think is a, is a, is a bad feminist position mm -hmm. <laughs> for sexual violence. Um, um, because so much sexual injury and, and is, and harm is diffuse and spread out across the population and not just located on these, on these predators. Um, yeah, <clears throat> I lost my, I had, a, I had another thought that I wanted to add there, but I sort of lost it at the moment. Um, um, well, yeah, we talked a little bit about this in um, a recent episode about decriminalizing domestic violence, about removing it from the criminal justice system because it doesn't, uh, it, it's not lowering rates of domestic violence and, and kind of, um, it doesn't prevent um, reoffense and all these other issues. Like, so how do we reimagine it outside of the criminal justice system? But, um, right out. Um, but as far as like the sexual offender goes, um, like we just don't have an idea in a way that we don't have an idea about what a rehabilitated domestic abuser is um, or how that right. rehabilitation process even happens. Um, we don't have it with the, the sexual offender, which seems like bad feminist policy because if, if the idea is to, um, reduce sexual injury, like, um, sort of putting people in situations that do tend to increase the likelihood of violence, like, um, you know, uh, prison, poverty, et cetera, seems like the, the bad way to go about these things. Right. Right. And I mean, residency, so, you know, um, a few thoughts on that. One is, and, I, and this is this is the thought I had earlier. Um, you know, it's 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 phenomenal to, to me and to anyone sort of reading. And you know, if you're reading academic journals, you can be reading the New York Times or the Atlantic or whatever. You know, since the late '90s, at the at the latest, there have been studies and studies that suggest kind of the trope of recidivism is just that it's a trope, and we are all attached to it. We're attached to this notion that the sex offender is just a recidivating nightmare <laughs> who who is just unstoppable. You know. And study after study suggests that is not true, that, that, uh, sex offenders, uh, recidivate, you know, ab about the same rate that other, other criminals recidivate on, you know, on their crimes. I think, I think the sort of steady statistic is like rapists are more likely to rape, you know, again, than non-rapists are. But I mean, that's, that's, that doesn't support the kind of myth we have of, of the unstoppable, um, predator. Um, the point you're making about, um, rehab, you know, and, and there are, there are small, um, you know, non-state uh, um, programs and organizations like Generation Five, I think, out in Oakland, um, at, at, that try to do various sort of restorative justice projects uh, with 
sex offenders, for the most part, we, you know, rehabilitation looks like civil commitment and civil commitment institutions just look like prison. And so there, there isn't much rehab going on in civil, you know, in, in, in civil, in civil commitment institutions. Um, I will say, and, and here, I, I, you know, I did not listen to the decriminalizing DV uh, episode. Um, it does make me worry sometimes that I think the left jumps on restorative justice projects and ideas and, and getting the state, you know, out of the business of, of, uh, penalty when it, they seem to focus on sex and sex trends. And like, I'm all for, I mean, I'm kind of all for restorative justice projects and also for using civil law and courts when you don't have to use criminal law. But I sometimes worry the way we tend to go after like feminist legal reform and sexual violence as like the, the, uh, you know, the main, the main target for, oh, we should get that out of criminal law and into restorative justice. It just, yeah, it makes me a little bit worried sometimes that like, I wish we had the same kind of fervor for all kinds of, <laughs> for all kinds of crimes rather than just, you know, our hyper focus on, on sex crimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I have a lot of issues with the sort of um, prison abolitionist, abolitionist movement. Um, but we don't have to go into this, but, uh, but yeah, I, the restorative <laughs> justice, um, idea, um, in certain cases seems, um, uh, a little bit naive at, at times, but, um, I mean, so you were talking about like with the, the, uh, Aziz Ansari case, um, in, yeah. in your book about how there only seem to be sort of two definitions available to, um, to, Grace, uh, who was the woman who uh, had the incident with Aziz Ansari, um, to, in order to explain or to label what had happened and one was awkward sex or assaultive sex and that there doesn't seem to be a sort of um, wide understanding of all the different kinds of terrible sex that can happen. But uh, my question is there, I guess, is bad sex a, um, is it a feminist issue? Yeah. So that, thank you. And sort of we'll move into the, uh, you know, book number two, which just came out a few weeks ago. Uh, through consent. uh, so, so yeah, I mean, I think I, you know, I, I listened to, um, your discussion with Heidi Matthews about the Aziz Ansari case and I found it really fascinating. Um, because there, right. Like I think what, what she took issue with was the way that this was being, this was being appropriated by the author to maybe make a claim, a claim for herself. I don't, whatever. Um, you know, I don't really have a two cents about that, but I, but I, what fascinated me about that story was, um, uh, the way, uh, the author says, or I think, I think this is Grace's quote says, um, you know, I decided, I had to decide whether or not it was an awkward sexual, sexual experience or sexual assault. And I decided it was sexual assault. I'm paraphrasing, but that is almost verbatim, you know, the language of that article. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, it seemed to me like, the explosion on the interwebs and everywhere else was this is me too gone too far. This is ridiculous. Um, you know, this is now weaponizing sexual regret. And I, I am sympathetic to the way that like this got caught up in a, you know, and that we're, we're, we're lumping too much, right? We're lumping, um, the, the horrible cases with, uh, with the sexual regret cases. And, and I say, I think sure. But for me, for me, the issue is the way that the language of consent, um, uh, doesn't allow us to think about, you know, the, the range that there's a whole range between awkward sexual experience and sexual assault. And can't we talk about that? And can't that be, um, a, you know, a, a, a feminist project to think about that? And I, and I, I, I am, um, 
also sympathetic to the notion that like some bad sex is important and formative and you need to make mistakes. And my issue is the way that like, you know, bad sex is so often patterned and one-sided and good for dudes and not good for girls and women. And I know I'm speaking, I'm speaking heteronormatively, I'm speaking in big <laughs> universals, right? But what interests me is, is the way it's like gendered patterned acquiescence and why so often people consent to sex they don't want to have. And I think the kind of consent, what I'm calling the consent paradigm doesn't allow us to get to vote to that problem, right? And, and if anything, uh, it, it, the language, because we're so attached to the language of consent, it's like the language we, we have for bad sex or persistently bad sex. We then can sometimes convert into non-consent. And that's a problem, not least because, well, you know, for two reasons. One is conservative backlash and you get Fox News going crazy. And you also get, you know, the not crazy backlash, like, you know, folks like you who are, who are, who are rightfully critical, you know, about, about the language of non-consent to describe, you know, bad sex. Um, um, uh, and the other is a phenomenological one and, I, you know, a whopper of a word. But I mean, I do worry a little bit about that people will feel assaulted when they only have the language of consent and non-consent um, available to them. I can say a little bit more about, um, you know, what's happening on campuses and moves to affirmative consent if you want, but I'll turn it back to you. Um, yeah, I am very interested in the idea of affirmative consent. I'm one of the reasons why <laughs> I'm interested in it is because it just seems so, um, well, part of the conversation that I haven't at least heard is like, well, how do you enforce affirmative consent? Like how, if, if a lot of rape cases come down to, he said, she said, um, of course the guy can just say, yeah, she verbally consented and she, you know, whatever. But, um, but the idea of like using things like, recording consent or uh using an app or you know something like that just seems um uh like the opposite of how these this conversation should be moving um <laughs> it just doesn't seem like it's going yeah. to actually prevent um bad sex or harm or assault or rape or whatever um because you, you can consent verbally on tape to yes i consent to sex and then you know, uh, the, the situation changes and all of a sudden sex can turn into rape sometimes. Right. Right. Um, right. Those record, those apps seem to me like the kind of new version of the, of the Antioch policy back in the early nineties, which is going to be a punching bag for everyone. Um, although here, right. It seems to me like the recording, those, those apps are really about possibly profit on the part of the apps and also about liability on the part of, you know, the institution. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it seems kind of worthless, <laughs> both both like morally and also legally, even though. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, you know, I don't I think there's a little confusion about, the def, you know, differences between affirmative consent in misconduct policies and occasionally, occasionally in um, you know, state sex laws, like a few states have an affirmative consent standard, like three or four, um, either through case law or through legislation. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, enthusiastic consent, which you hear folks like Jacqueline Friedman talking about, um, about, you know, wanting to be there and, and mutuality and reciprocity. And I mean, just to be clear, you know, and I also am a big Laura Kipnis fan, <laughs> but I, but I do think sometimes there's like a panic about the panic as if we're codifying, you know, multiple mutual orgasms into our sexual misconduct <laughs> policy and anything other than that is defaulted. And, it, you know, for the, for the most part, languages in universities and the misconduct policies, um, about affirmative consent are, 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 
it's a template. It's actually the language that uh, is in, in, this, in Wisconsin's criminal code. And it usually says something like, you know, voluntary free permission, you know, verbal or otherwise. Or otherwise is not the exact quote, but my point is actually none of these things, none of these um, codes say just verbal. And that's also, I think, a common misconception, um, which is important because so, so often sex, you know, you do not verbalize it, yes. And mm -hmm. also, I raise this point, it seems like a little one, but I think a big one about disability. And some people are, you know, mute or don't speak. And I actually think that matters to think about how to, how to craft policies around people across the spectrum of ability, but I'm getting a little bit um, sidetracked. So anyway, I, I, I think the policies usually say, say something to the effect of, you have to perform something one degree over silence or frozenness for this to count, for this not to be sexual misconduct. And, you know, at the university level, it doesn't mean that if you don't, it's a crime and you go to jail, it means you might face a sexual misconduct, you know, a disciplinary mm -hmm. board. Um, all of that, all of that said, and then I'll, you know, I'll say, yes, there's a panic about the panic, but also I think Laura Kipnis and others are, are right about something, which is, you know, you do see in brochures and universities in the, in the, in the, you know, um, student life literature in the poster that Heidi Matthews brought up on your earlier podcast, you do see things like, um, language like, you know, consent is enthusiastic, creative, sex with, sex with alcohol. Um, you know, you can't consent with alcohol. You can't, and all of these feel, uh, terribly, uh, mm -hmm. dangerous and, and, and contra or against, you know, legal scholars at Harvard, Jeannie Suk and Jacob Pearson who say, ah, these are becoming these are being, this is being codified into the misconduct policies. They're not. I mean, they're, you know, they're not in the, the actual misconduct policies, but they are in the literature and the brochures that circulate through, you know, student life. And, and there, I think that's a real problem because I think you're telling students, right? If it's not best awesomest sex ever, it's sexual assault. And it also, again, robs you of language to say, okay, I consented to it, but it's still miserable. <laughs> Why am I consenting to it? And what are the conditions on campus, um, uh, that encourage us to consent to sex that we don't want? Donna Haraway on your program also had a great idea, which I hadn't heard of before. And I love it. The idea of multi-generational, you know, housing on, on, <laughs> yeah, on campuses, yeah. um, you know, like exactly a kind of, a kind of institutional reform that is not, is not punitive. It's not, he allows us to say, you know, how to structure, you know, campus life and also the rest of the world, uh, to minimize, uh, shitty sex for lack of a technical term. And so how did consent become, how the buzzword, I guess, or I'm, I, I get how it, it, it's become the sort of, um, the, the focus on dealing with, uh, with rape and sexual assault. But at the same time, like how, why do we keep sort of shoving so much onto it as far as, um, uh, you know, bringing consent into it means that you're going to have rapturous pleasure and, and, and all those kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, that is a, <laughs> I love when people say that's a great question because it always means they don't have to answer <laughs> to it, but that is, <laughs> that is a great question. Um, you know, I, I don't know if I can give you like the best historical answer. I, I do think it has to do with the fact that, so, you know, in the, um, 1970s, uh, as a function of like post-war liberal legal reform and also, and really feminist reform and feminist education, a lot of states changed their you know, the standard, the threshold for proving sexual assault or rape from force mm -hmm. to consent, right? So where you had to prove force or resistance, you now had to prove mostly non-consent, right? She typically, indexically, she said no. Um, and I think because consent got codified and has now the power of, you know, law and the power of legal, legal language, I think it became very sexy for, uh, and not just sexy, I mean, powerful and seductive for activists. Um, so that, 
so that, you know, um, uh, yeah, that consent had this kind of salience because it was the language of law and the language of sex law. And if we could harness consent into our, and inject it into our, you know, into our sexual politics and beef it up and get it to mean something, you know, bigger and more robust, you know, that, that might be our erotic guarantor or our erotic savior. I also think, and this is very hard to prove and speculative. It sounds like, well, okay. Like I'm a, you know, lefty academic, <laughs> but, but I actually think there's a story too about, about, about gay acceptance, you know, and about, um, Lawrence v. Texas and decriminalizing sodomy. And that like part of the power of consent is that the liberals and the left all got on board with saying, you know, whatever it is consenting adults do, that's okay. Like it should be about, you know, whatever consenting adults do, which I think, of course, you know, for me led to the problem of the kind of construction of the sex offender and also the construction of the child. Um, uh, but I do think it part, part of the magnetism of consent has to do both with, you know, one with gay acceptance and two, with the fact that consent is the language, is the predominant language of sex law. And as I say in the book, I think it was, a, I think it's a mistake to use that language in our sexual politics. I think we sort of have to in law. I think it's the least bad standard. Um, I think, I think we have to in sex. Like it's, it's sex with consent is better than sex without consent. Um, but I think as, you know, in terms of sexual politics and building, building sexual culture, I'm not sure. I, I, I no longer think uh, uh, we should be sticking with, with consent. And so then what about the use of this word harm? Like, how do we define the harm that sex does, whether it's consensual or non-consensual? Um, because I do feel like um, not having a good definition of that also can lead to this place of, well, is this uh, like like the uh the um, Aziz Ansari case, um, this idea of like, well, I was harmed by this. So therefore, like he must have been harming me or some, you know, creating a, a sort of intent uh, uh, behind what was happening on his part. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I was wondering if we could talk about the word harm a bit. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, right. Uh, there's a, one of my my uh, mentors. His name is Bernard Harcourt. He has an article from 1999 called The Collapse of the Harm Principle. And his, his basic argument is that, um, all kinds of movements, liberal, uh, and, you know, liberal, conservative, feminist started using the language of harm. The idea being, right, if there was a harm, then it could be actionable. Right? Then there could be a law on it, you know? Um, and so even going from like, you know, harm, harm reduction, like going from like the, a harm, you know, victimless, harmless crime of marijuana became like harm reduction, right? Um, or pornography was not about obscenity, but about the harm to women. And therefore you could try to enact laws on it. Um, so this is all to say I'm kind of with your, uh, what I take to be your kind of implication that there is a, there is a fluidity or plasticity to, to harm that makes it a little bit dangerous. And also the notion that, you know, and I think this is partly millennial. I hate blaming <laughs> millennials for things, but I think it is partly millennial that like if I'm harmed or if I, if I feel feel violated, there must be something wrong and something has to change, you know, and sort of a, um, uh, yeah, an assumption that, that, that being hurt means, right, that was your fault <laughs> or, or, or a law's fault or an institution's fault or something. Um, so, so I, I, I tend to think, um, I, I tend to think that we, that, that we, we have the most running room and this is, I'm going to sound, uh, obscenely liberal, but I tend to think we have the most running room to think about harms as, you know, violation against, you know, the, uh, against this jargony, but rights, rights bearing subjects that we have certain kind of rights in a liberal polity. And when those rights are violated, that, that should be a problem, whether actionable by civil law or by, 
uh, criminal law or not by law at all, by institutional reforms or by institutional procedures. And so to put this more concretely, what I mean is, you know, I, I, I teach a class on uh, sex and consent. And at one, in one class, we go through all the different kinds of wrongs that various scholars and activists raise about, you know, the wrongs of unwanted sex. And, you know, there's sequelae, like the, like the trauma you experience after sexual violation, um, um, uh, you know, harm, I don't know, to the social fabric, uh, like that. And, and my issue here is, you know, well, what if you, what if you don't experience, uh, trauma? Like what if something, you know, some horrible, you know, sex, unconsented to or consented to sex happens in you and you're, you're doing okay. Like you still think something went wrong there if you, you didn't consent to it or if you said no. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so I, 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 it, uh, it seems to me like, um, harm is always going to be to some degree moralized as in it's going to be kind of culturally or socially determined by what, what we think wrongs are. And I think that's, yeah, this is all a little bit vague, but I kind of think that that that's, that's a kind of collective decision-making about what sorts of practices we think are, are violations, right. And what sorts of practices we, and, and actionable mm -hmm. violations. Um, so, so I, you know, I don't think you have a right to, to not regret sex or to feel like sex was shitty. Um, I do think you have a right to not have sex if you've said you don't want to, or if you've, if you've, if you've, if you've uh, you know, expressed, expressed resistance. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, yeah. Sorry. If that was no, a little bit that's, um, I was surprised, um, to, to see you writing in response to Catherine McKinnon. Um, if only because I feel like she's become such a pariah within, uh, feminist, uh, writing, uh, contemporarily that um, I don't even see her. You have a resurgence. Sorry? I mean, I do think she, I think she went, I think in like when I was in college and, and high school, like the late 90s, early 2000s, you know, she was kind of, she was also, you know, an mm -hmm. easy punching bag. And I kind of think she's having a resurgence. Oh, really? <laughs> I see. So <laughs> I, I feel like that's happening with Dorkin, but um, I haven't seen as much on, on McKinnon, although maybe it's happening in a more sort of academic uh, I, yeah, place. Yeah, I'm thinking about yeah. like, uh, um, uh, yeah, I'm thinking about, you know, she, there was a discussion with her in the New York Times and she wrote an op-ed about Me Too. Um, I also have an article coming out about her called Catherine McKinnon's Wayward Children. But anyway, you go first. Uh, no, I was just sort of, uh, I was just sort of wondering how her thinking is, um, how you think it might be useful for this uh, for this particular time. I know that the argument is always that she, she yeah. goes too far, that uh, she uh, is invested in sort of like state power um, over sexual relations and, and so on and so forth. Um, but I do think that she's more nuanced than she tends to be sort of scapegoated as. And so I was just sort of wondering if you wanted to rehabilitate her a little bit on our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, I will uh, come out of the closet, but I'm kind of in love with that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, and also, her writing is imperfect. And yes, sometimes she goes too far. And I will just say now, rather, so we don't forget, because I try to say it every time I ever talk about Catherine McKinnon. And, and, and to Janet Halley's credit, a law professor at Harvard, she also says it all the time. McKinnon, you know, has never said right. all sex is rape. That is not her point. Like, it's an easy, easy way to throw her under the bus. Um, and that, you know, that wasn't her, her point. Her point was, under conditions of pervasive sex inequality, maybe, maybe consent doesn't tell us as much as we'd like it to. That now seems like a kind of like basic mm -hmm. point, you know. Um, uh, she also, you know, just for, for your listeners who don't know, 
uh, made sexual harassment an actionable claim as sex discrimination. So that, you know, the uh, uh, bosses, you know, wanting sexual favors for promotion or so you don't get fired or bosses creating a horrible work environment by calling you, you know, names all the time, like that is no longer legal. Like, so, so, so uh, I do think, yes, she gets a bad, a bad rap uh, and is, and is uh, easily hyperbolized, you know, uh, but also it doesn't help that her writing is so, is so often <laughs> hyperbolic. Um, so, so I, I find her helpful because I think, and sort of resuscitate, you know, um, resuscitate those earlier writings of hers to say, you know, she wasn't wrong about the fact that social inequalities and that like the, 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 by zeroing in on the, you know, present tense sex happening right now, misses much broader social conditions that led to that moment and that might make the bargaining kind of one-sided, right? Um, so I do find that helpful. I also find her, um, inc incredibly useful in the way she punctures our, our, um, assumptions about, you know, children, uh, and, 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 uh, and childhood innocence. So for example, and, and I don't agree with the conclusions, but I agree with the, with the critique. Um, she'll say, uh, so like, uh, basically, you know, she says, she, oh, here's the best example. She says, you know, if, if the rape law worked, um, we wouldn't need age of consent laws. Right. That, and, and her argument is that what age of consent laws functionally do is under a certain age, it assumes, you know, uh, uh, sex is guilty until proven innocent. And over that age, it's, it's you know, it's assumed mm -hmm. that the woman wants it. Right. Now it's, it's said sort of in that kind of uh, provocative language, but it's, but, and then she says, you know, somewhere else that, that fumbling teenage sex might be the, the most, the most equal sex they're ever going to have, <laughs> you know, um, and she, again, you know, she notices that it, a lot of cases in sexual harassment law and, and, and in child pornography, she, she often says, um, why is it that so often sexual harassment cases involve like y young boys or young boys in school? And why are we so anti-child pornography, but not pornography? And if a child is harmed, why isn't a woman? And there, there are good <laughs> answers to these, to these questions. But I do think she, she wants to point out to us, right, that, that we have a kind of, myth of sexual harm about monsters and children and not about the pervasiveness of sex inequality. And there, I think she's, she's quite helpful. When in 2016, she says she wants to get consent taken out of sex altogether and, re and go to a revert to a force standard, but force is much more expensively defined to really basically conclude, uh, to include, um, men and women as a relationship of force. There, now <laughs> I started off by saying she never said all sex is rape. She doesn't say that. But it, but it, the, the, the policy seems to be, or the law that she seems to want to enact would be the sex is kind of unequal and probably assaultive unless proven otherwise. And that seems to me really terribly uh, terrible. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I, I do want to talk a little bit about the idea of childhood innocence, um, particularly in the way that some feminist um, commentary these days seems to be expanding the idea of sort of um, women being children up until. Uh, the age of consent, like 18 years old. So this sort of outrage of um, uh, men sleeping with um, or dating or whatever, teenage girls, um, but then calling those 16, 17 year old girls sometimes children, um, to me seems very weird. Um, uh, and, and sort of mm -hmm. like oddly puritanical. Um, because I do feel like there's this, this new hostility toward, um, power imbalances in relationships, particularly with, um, older men, younger women to the, I'm obsessed with reading Reddit relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And I'll, I'll, anytime there's an uh-huh. age gap in uh, in the story that the person is, you know, they, they their relationship is going wrong. They want to know what can be done about it, and it's like, well, he's right. ten years older, so he's obviously a pervert. But but I find that is happening. That conversation is happening right, more right, and more, right. and I find it interesting. And you write you write a little bit about it in um, in uh, section harm. Um, so I was just wondering if you could talk a bit about it now. Yeah, I would, I would, I would love to. And you know, unlike McKinnon, I don't think everything is explained by sex inequality and M over F. But I, I do think, like, I just skimmed, you know, last night an article in the New York Times about how the Pope is finally acknowledging that all these nuns, you know, these nuns' claims of sexual abuse mm-hmm. against them by priests. Um, and the article, you know, divides their claims against the claims of of boys in the church, right? And I just think to myself, like, this is all the same problem. This is about priests manipulating their positions of power um, and their relative immunity and privilege to exploit sex with people that don't want it. And what are we doing separating, you know, the, the boy victims from the nuns? Like why, what, what is that doing for us? And I, and I, I don't really have an answer to that, but I, but I just think, would it be more useful to think of this as a kind of pervasive, um, pervasive problem of, of men's sense of sexual entitlement and men leveraging their superordinated status to extract sex from people who, who don't want to be there. Um, so Rather than right, focusing on the the, the corruption or ru- ru- ruining of of children. Um, so, and to you know, to get more directly to your question, um, you know, I kind of loathe not loathe, but I I, I found disturbing the the me at fourteen uh, campaign after you know Roy Moore. Um, yeah, I don't know yeah. if you are familiar with this, but uh, you know, after the Roy Moore explosion, lots of people posted pictures of me at fourteen. Um, and the pictures, you know, the idea being, right, at 14, you're super innocent, you have braces, you're awkward, you have pimples. And, and, and you know, it seemed like the, it, the, the pulse of that movement was to, was to, you know, shame Roy Moore for being a pedophile. And it just, again, it seemed to miss the mark on so many counts. Like, first of all, when I was 14, I was, you know, an aggressively <laughs> sexual being. <laughs> and, and, you know, and second of all, like, as you, as, you know, Again, you and Heidi Matthews said on, the, on another uh, podcast, I mean, the issue of, about him was not really pedophilia. It was he was cornering girls and women to like far off locations to, 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 to you know, mm-hmm. sexually assault them. <laughs> and so like the, in the inner workings of his head or wh- whether or not his structure of desire like is, is pedophilic seems to me just beside the point. Um, uh, and same thing, you know, with Kevin Spacey, like the sort of, you know, the, the push to, to call him a pedophile and, you know, yelling at him when he comes out as cover for, as cover for his sexual assault. And I mean, I wrote, I wrote about this on Slate. Like, I don't think he actually, he said, like, I did terrible, I probably, I did terrible things. Also, I'm gay, which you all knew, but I did terrible things. And I think in, in I think the kind of uh, scorn that was heaped upon him by gay pundits like Dan Savage was actually a kind of defensive posture to say, oh, no, 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 like gay people don't assault people, pedophiles do. And I'm like, no, like gay people <laughs> assault people also, you know? Um, and so I do think that the kind of innocent, both the innocent child and the pedophile become a kind of a, a, an alibi for us not to think about both how we're complicit and also how, how, you know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> non-pedophiles commit, commit sexual assault, you know, also. Um, I, I just want to say one last thing, which I, you know, I'll, I want to acknowledge the way that kind of race and racial difference have been notably a- absent in our conversation so far. And, and one of the ways this does come up is, is in the innocent child and how often you know, innocence seems to be a prerogative of white children uh, and white kids get to be innocent, whereas kids of color, namely black and brown kids, you know, are, are always treated as or, or assumed to be adults, especially in, you know, criminal law context, right, where you see 
adult, you know, waivers into adult sports and like this. Um, and, you know, point taken, I think what's also been interesting over the past several years, um, is the way that that brown and black children have been sort of discursively framed also as innocent. And you see this in, um, a lot of the, you see this for better and for worse, but for worse is in the, is in the trafficking, uh, right, the trafficking yeah. and prostitution mm-hmm. debates. Right. Where again, rather than focusing on political economy and on sex inequality and why certain people from certain countries are forced to do work that they really don't want to do, it becomes a story about, you know, um, people, people ruining small children. Um, uh, and, and I think we, yeah, we miss, we miss broader social critique and, and, and broader critique of, of, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, political economy. Yeah. I think of, you know, Jackie Wang wrote this, um, amazing essay a couple of years ago called Against Innocence, um, which is about, um, thinking about uh, empathy and proportionate response to violence and all this stuff without bringing in the idea of whether or not this person is innocent, like not needing innocence to be a requirement for us to feel like this person is a human being. Um, uh, And I think about that essay all the time, but yeah, I think that. Yeah, I know that that's great. I'm, I'm always very wary of what I think of as sympathetic subjects in social movements. Um, and easy targets. So sympathetic subjects would be exactly, exactly that, right? Like, like one of the most common criticisms of sex offender notification and registration requirements are, uh, this teenage boy, right? Like he had sex with his girlfriend. He didn't realize she was 15 or she was 14 and he was 16. And, you know, now he's on the sex offender registry for 25 years. And my thought is like, that's terrible. He shouldn't be on the sex offender registry, but do, do we need to be a teenage boy who accidentally had sex with someone a couple years younger than him to recognize that sex offender registration and notification requirements are right. just are just disastrous uh, in terms of you know repressing sexual violence. Um, and you see this too, like in all of the decisions over the past few years about um, restricting capital punishment and life sentences. And this, you know, Supreme Court, where it was like, you know, I'm going to get I'm going to get the details a little bit wrong, but it's like you know, minors can't uh, face capital punishment, and minors can't be sentenced to life for non-homicidal crimes, and now minors can't be sentenced to life for homicidal crimes. And and all along the way, I'm thinking like. You know, but to what extent does this shore up? Okay, but if but if you're a black male adult, mm-hmm. then it's totally fine. <laughs> you know, uh, and so I do worry about sympathetic subjects and the way that the way that sort of recourse to sympathetic subjects can solidify systems that are that are you know un- unjust to begin. Yeah, with. and and the whole idea of like it's victimhood that makes you innocent. Like you know, if a 16 year old boy is sort of uh, you know quote unquote preyed upon by an older man then he's an innocent child but if that 16 year old boy like uh, you know rapes uh, a 15 year old girl or whoever like then he's an adult and a monster right so it's the um, yeah anyway right. Uh, I have <laughs> right right and both of those things seem wrong and then you could talk about you could talk about you know, the Steubenville case where the CNN and the talk show host got, got obliterated for saying, you know, he, he had such a promising career and everyone, you know, went crazy because he was a rapist. And, and it's just, you, you, you can, like, right, you can think about the ways that teenage boys are socialized to, to, you know, extract sex from girls that don't want to be there and about the sort of horrible things that teenage boys and teenage girls are capable of without having to assume that, you know, mm-hmm. they're Voldemort yeah. from day one. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, 
Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.